He said, hey, let me, let me read 13, 1 through 3 for us as we're bringing up the lights. And, and then we'll journey through this text together. Paul writes, and actually, let me, let me pick up the last little bit of 31 there in chapter 12. Paul writes, and he says, I'll show you still a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Paul really offers us, in some sense, a corrective to what is kind of the, the, the vast majority of manifestations of Christianity. It's kind of the way that we live out Christianity. For many of us, kind of our understanding of how we live out our Christian faith, how we've been taught to understand things, it, it functions really on, on two levels, right? And so there's, there's something to know and something to do. And so it's possible that you live the entirety of your life. It's possible that you live out kind of the warp and woof of Christianity, doing everything right. And so if someone were to ask, what do you know about Bob? What do you know about Kim? What do you know about Amy? Oh my goodness. Have you seen what they do? Or, or, or if we're to look at the aspect of kind of what do you know and how does this function, and they would say, they're the one I go to. Man, if I have any questions about the Bible, I go see Justin, I go see Joel, I go see... Uh, uh, Denise, I go see one of these people because I know that, that not only do they do right things, but they also know right things. Well, what Paul tells us within this passage, I mean, you can do all the right things, that you can know all the right information, and you can completely miss what God has for you. Because you miss it on an aspect of understanding what love is. Love is his proper motivator. Love as the dis- disposition of our hearts towards God in the midst of knowing him, in the midst of serving him. Now, Paul goes on right after this, and in fact, next week we're going to pick this up, and he gives us a careful definition of all the various things that love is. And so let's read them. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. This Man, this would have been great for Father's Day. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. <laughs> Maybe not. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So Paul really wants them to understand kind of what this is in really an acute fashion. But in terms of, of this passage and kind of understanding and moving through this, I want us to understand it, love, in terms of two things or two passages, and both of which are going to be found in First John. Do you see? Because love is not this thing that is inborn to us. We, you and I, people, humanity, we are not born naturally loving and bent towards sacrificial love towards others. It's not that God looked down from heaven and said, man, I, I, I see him. Like I see Jonathan, he's the most loving person in the world. Let me come near to him with my love. 1 John 4.19, 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. God's love is initiatory towards us. God's love comes towards us, and it is on the basis of God's love towards us that we respond. So God sees us helpless, he sees us wallowing, and he comes towards us in love. And then John goes on 
to give us a fuller picture of this in verses 9 and 10. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. God showed his love among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In some sense, to live as a Christian is to live with this understanding that God has sent his son Jesus into the world and our lives, if they are to be found in his love, are to be lived through Christ. Well, how does this work? Well, he goes on in verse 10. He says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And what a comfort. What an amazing comfort and assurity that God didn't look down at you and say, Haley, I, 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 just, I see how much you love me, and therefore I am compelled to love you. God looked down, and in some sense, he said, Philip, I see how fast you run from me, and on the basis of this, I come towards you in love. It's not that we loved him first, but that he loved us first. And he sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. You see, love begins, in some sense, we have to understand it in terms of its sacrificial aspect. That God looked down and he saw us, and according to Paul in Ephesians 2, that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, and we liked it, and we were content to stay there. And so he sent his son Jesus, and, and Jesus came and took upon himself our rightful punishment and penalty for our sin. The Bible says that God is good and just and holy, and on the basis of his justice and on the basis of his righteousness, he must punish sin. And knowing this and knowing you and I were caught up in rebellion since Adam and Eve sent Jesus to take on the penalty and the punishment of our rebellion. So when the Bible writes the word propitiation, this is what it means. Jesus stands there on the cross receiving in himself the wrath of of God, so that we might be shielded from God's wrath, shielded from the penalty and the punishment of our sin. And on the basis of this, we are invited and invested to enjoy the love of God and to experience the love of God and to extend that to others. And quite simply, when Paul looked at the situation there in Corinth, he said, man, where is the love? He needed the Beatles to write the song so he could really understand that all you need is love. And if you were to look at them, he'd say, uh, more of a Dolly Parton type deal, ain't no love here, right? And so he didn't see this aspect of love, but what he saw was a lot of spiritual pride where people were puffed up and they say, look at me, look at what I can do, look at what I know and look at what I am doing. And those are the three aspects that he hits on them. Within this passage, there is the aspect of what are they spiritually doing in verse 1, what do they spiritually know in verse 2, and what are they compelled to do on the basis of duty or some inborn pride in verse 3. And he systematically moves through and addresses the inadequacies of their heart and ours. It's difficult in some sense to walk up to someone and, and to tell them all the various ways they fail, right? This could, this could stimulate an awkward conversation, especially on Father's Day. Dads, we need a pass, Amen. Look what Paul does. He takes it completely upon himself. And so he's been browbeating them in some sense, saying, look, you have this completely, unbelievably messed up and confused understanding of spiritual realities. You think speaking in tongues is the greatest thing in the world, and you have misaligned your understanding. You're engaged in doing these things that satisfy self instead of serving others. So he turns it on himself, and he invites them to evaluate him and he, he asks them to look at the way that he lives his life. And so he throws out, quite simply, 
if I speak in tongues of men and of angels. He says, if, if this is kind of what I do, if you look at me and you say, man, Paul is really a spiritual guy, and we know this on the basis of what he's doing. He's speaking in tongues of men and of angels. He, he has the gift of tongues that Paul's talked about previously in chapter 12. And he said, but if I do this in such a way that I have not love, what is he saying? He said, when I engage in this act, when I engage in this process, in my mind, nowhere is how is this affecting my brother or sister in Christ. When I engage in this act, when I engage in the use of this gift, nowhere in my thought process, nowhere in my approaching this, am I ever stopping to think, I wonder how this, I wonder how this impacts and benefits Johnny. I wonder how this impacts and benefits Cinda. I wonder how this impacts and benefits those in my family, those in my community, and the lost around me. They're caught up in the euphoria of the experience. They're caught up in the amazing engagement, standing there before God, communing directly with God, as Paul describes it, the tongues of men and of angels. But I'm not doing so in such a way that reflects an understanding of that person's worth in God's eyes. That's what it is to love. It's not an inborn emotion. It's not something purely contained in me, but it's something that's met out on those around me. And as it is met out on those around me, it is verifying its legitimacy. Look what he says. But if I have not love, and he describes himself, and it's just this really incredible way. He says, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And there's a variety of different uh, ways that we can interpret this and, and, and ways scholars have sought to explain this. But have you ever had somebody love you so little that they give to your child a musical kit for their second or third birthday? <laughs> have you ever experienced that? My brother-in-law did that for us. Like, I still think, what in the world, man? What in the world? And so he gave to one of our kids the little cymbals, the little drum, and, and, and a horn that have one note, and it's like, meh, meh. Man, what, what? What are, you, what are you showing? Clearly he was showing he does not love us. But when you see them in there, and, and, and so there's no degree of musical prowess where they can make that interesting appealing, where you're just like, man, I'm just going to catch the groove and ease into it. Your kid's just like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Like, what is that? I'm so tired. I want sleep. Why do you hate mommy and daddy so much? Call your mom, she needs to come watch the kids. That's what he says we are. When you engage in your spiritual exercise with not having your brother or sister in Christ in mind, this is what you are. You're a person who's so incredibly puffed up that you can't begin to see or, or perceive or recognize how your actions affect those around you, nor do you care. Nor do you care. So begin to see how bankrupt and how empty this is. That everybody around you could look at you and just say, oh my goodness, they're the most spiritually amazing person I've ever met. When I'm near them, I feel closer to the Lord. But internally you know. And God looks down from heaven and he knows. You're doing it for that response. You enjoy the praise and adulation of those around you. You enjoy being known as a spiritual person 
You enjoy being praised as a spiritual person. You don't actually want to be closer to God as an end. You want to be closer to God as a means to be praised by those around you. This isn't a loving approach. The most brilliant, faithful display of spiritual exercise that we can engage in, that we can endeavor in, looks at those around us and says, how can my walk with Jesus, my display of spiritual giftings, make Jesus in his life more prominent in their life? How can it be supremely impactful in their life? And how can God leverage the things he has given to me in salvation for his name to be famous in their life? And when we engage in it in this way, it is then and only then that we are said to have attained to having love in the midst of our spiritual exercises. So look at what Paul talks about in verse 2. It's this idea of knowledge. This idea of knowledge. He says, if I have prophetic powers, so if I have the ability to discern what God is doing in some situation or scenario, somebody comes to me and says, this is what's going on in my life, and I say, well, this is what God is doing, and, and this is what God is saying. If I, can, if I can look around and say, this is what God is up to, so if I have prophetic powers, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, Paul seems, of course, to be speaking in terms of a hyperbole. He said, if I understand everything, and if I have faith such as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am not. I am not. Back in chapter 8 and verse 1, Paul told us that having knowledge for the sake of having knowledge does nothing but puff up. It just kind of makes us swell more and more and more. But man, I don't know about you, but I am completely enamored by, the, by people that just know a lot of information. And, 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 and that probably says more about me than it does about anything. But it's just this idea, when I can come to somebody and ask them a question and know that they have the answer... It sets me on this path to want to continue to engage in them. Or if I find some resource in some book, and I find that in the midst of reading this book, I recognize that this author is able to, to cast the truth in such a way that's incredibly compelling, I find myself growing increasingly dependent upon them. And I want to go to their resources over and over and over again. And, and then perhaps for you, in the midst of this, in the midst of kind of going down this path of asking this person, uh, what can you tell me about this? And you find that their answer is incredibly clarifying. That it's just incredibly beautiful. And, and in the midst of finding this experience, being caught up in this experience, somehow it enters into your mind, perhaps if I was that person, perhaps if I did these things, people would have the same response to me. And people would come and they would seek out my opinion, and people would come and they would seek out my wisdom, and, and then, and then I, I, I would be known as a wise person. They don't be known as a person who has all of this knowledge. And so Paul writes, he says, look, hold on a second, hold on a second, you need to understand something. That if you had all of the knowledge in the world, that there was no subject in which you weren't an expert. That if somebody comes up and they say, uh, you know, Shane, talk to me about this. And Shane just kind of waxes eloquent for 30 minutes. Jay, talk to me about this. And Jay just kind of waxes eloquent for 30 minutes. If they say, Leanne, talk to me about this. And you make them cry with your knowledge. But you don't have love in the middle of it. It's worthless. This is the sad truth. That at the end of our lives, at our funeral, somebody could stand and say their ministry was so incredibly impactful and phenomenal due to the basis of their handling of the word of God and, and, and how they communicated in such a way that pierced my heart week in and week out. Well, God looks at that person. 
He says, what you don't know is they did it for selfish reasons. What you don't know is, is they did it out of this perverted sense of duty where they felt compelled to, but they had absolutely no love for the people they were speaking to. Because we have confused and misunderstood the love of God. We do things out of a sense of duty. I feel compelled to do this so that God will love me. Then we completely misunderstand that God has loved us when we were unlovable. That he loves us still in the midst of our ignorance and waywardness. And that his love compels us to do the right things for the right reasons. We want to be sure that we're not engaged in doing things that merely puff us up. And I would say we have to be so incredibly careful that when we find somebody that, that knows right information and we're going to them, we want to make sure that in going to them time and time again, that we too aren't endeavoring, uh, uh, you know, accidentally perhaps, to puff them up by singing their praises, by talking about how great they are and how wonderful they are, instead of describing how great God is to have entrusted them with this information so that they might be mightily used by him to be maximally impactful in their brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul goes on and he says, so I know all these things, and if I have this terrific display of faith. Now, this is one of Jesus' favorite kind of metaphors or, or, or hyperbole, the things that he engaged with to describe faith. Jesus, in three of the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, said that if you have faith such as like the seed of a grain of mustard, then you could say to this mountain, be uprooted and cast into the sea. And so Paul writes, and he says, let's just imagine for a second that this is how stinking amazing your faith is. That what you say, what you pray, happens. That people look at you and say, whoo, man, I want Granny Ruth, or you know, I, want, I, want, I want this person praying for me, and, and, and I want, they're always caught on their knees, and I want them praying for me, because I know when they go to the Father, what they pray happens. What I pray may or may not, but what they pray happens. And so, and so I, I want them praying for me. And Paul says that you can have that kind of faith. And people can praise you. And people can be so impressed by you. And years later, historians may even see you and, and talk about how phenomenal your faith was, and they can write about it and say, we have no answer for the faith he or she had. When God looks at you, when God evaluates your heart, when he evaluates the motivations, when he looks at the disposition in the midst of engaging in these terrific acts of faith, that they had no love. So Paul returns with this damning indictment, and he says, if that's the case, if that's the way I engage things, if that's what I'm doing, then Corinthians, you need to understand something. I am nothing. I gotta tell you, that is terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. Because when I think about my life, I'm so much more driven by a sense of duty and commitment. I have to remind myself over and over and over again to be motivated and driven by love instead of just this idea that I've given my word and I will see it through. It's what I was instructed to do as a child. It's what I've been instructed to do in education. It's what I've, you know, commended my employees and people that I've worked with over the years. I mean, when you make a commitment, you see it through, which drives me to the aspect of doing things based upon my word and my commitment instead of being motivated by my love for people. 
It's easier in some sense. To love people is an exhausting endeavor because it means you care for them. It means you are moved when things happen to them. And as Paul has his list later, it means you don't stop engaging in them. If we don't do it that way, then we're nothing. Look at what he gets into verse 3. He says, if I give away all that I have and I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So Paul's talking about kind of end times gain. That you would stand before God and he would say, Jordan, well done, my good and faithful servant. That he would say, Justin, well done, my good and faithful servant. That he would say, Pat, well done, my good and faithful servant. That this is the aspect that if we have not love in the midst of engaging in sacrificial acts, then you will stand before God someday and you'll say, I don't know why the heck you did that. I'm looking at it and I see these things and, and it's just really got me scratching my, my, my all-knowing head into saying, why did you do this? The first thing he talks about is money. Now, for many of us, we read this and we say, Pastor, I don't have to worry about that. I'm certainly not giving away all that I have. You know, Jesus used this, 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 this sad engagement with this rich young man or rich young ruler. And in Matthew 10, 17, really the whole thing runs through 31, but I just want to look at a little bit of it. This guy has the problem that many of us have. If, typically, if you look at a church's giving, it's, it's kind of rate of contribution. To support the church rests on the shoulders of about 20% of us. It just does. Not that we all don't have the same drive, not that we all don't have the same directive, but, but apparently all don't have the same follow-through, right? Just kind of statistically as you want to look at it. And this guy ends up being, for us, a portrait of many of our hearts. Jesus comes uh, to encounter this man. In Mark 10, 17, it says, As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him. Now, already the guy's got the posture that we want in a servant of Jesus. He's excited. He runs up. He humbly bows down. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's got his eyes on the prize. Jesus says, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And the guy's thinking, it's a great vantage point. I got this. Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, listen to this, loved him. How great is that? We just see this picture of Jesus who knows when this brother starts running, who knows when this brother sets in his mind to run to Jesus, who knows at the moment that he takes his knees, knew what his question would be, knew the inadequacies of his heart, knew his eventual response, but still, in that moment, when he sees him down and he knows he's getting ready to rebuke him, he loves him. He loves you. Jesus sees you in your waywardness. He sees the way that money competes for the first place, for the prime place in your heart. He sees the way that you desperately hold on to it. And he sees, for some of us, the mess that we have made in our lives on the basis of money. We're drowning in debt. Generosity is not an option for you because you're up to your eyeballs in debt. You've borrowed and borrowed and borrowed to attain to a lifestyle that nobody, knows, nobody around you even cares that you have. So he looks at him and he loves him. He says, you lack one thing. 
in the place of freedom and bondage stood one thing for this person. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then he invites him. Jesus doesn't tell him, go and sell everything you have. Uh, Take a moment just to kind of take all that in and all that you sacrifice. Learn from those around you. No, he says, go and sell everything you have and then come and to follow me. He wants him to follow. He wants him to experience his love up close and personal. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Money. Stuff. Wants to be loved and adored by you. And we wrestle against an enemy that wants those same things for you. He wants you to grow your bank account fat. He wants you to be secure. He wants you to lack in nothing. And check this out. The enemy will satisfy your woeing conscience by putting $10 in the offering plate. He will. Or whatever amount you set in your mind, he has seeded that amount in your mind so that when it passes, your conscience will be relieved a dollar at a time. We serve a God who owns absolutely everything. He owns every dollar in your bank account. He owns your home. He carries the note. The only way to be faithful to that God in terms of giving is to let him set the amount that you give. It's not a tithe. It's not 12%. We're not talking net or gross. It is a prayer before God and say, God, what amount of money, if I were to give it, would honor you. And this is the scary thing. For some of us, it's everything. God wants you to sell everything and to move and to live amongst the nations. He wants you to abandon everything you have and to be faithful to go. But still, the difference in your life and a person who God says, I just want five bucks a week, is the difference is one of obedience. When God calls you to something difficult, He gives you the faith to follow through. But are you willing to be obedient? Are you willing to be faithful to him as he's faithful to you? We've got this guy here, this person here. Paul's describing himself, and and Paul clearly has given everything that he has. In Philippians, he says, I forsake everything, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, making him known. He says, if I give all of this away, and he said, look, even if I give myself up to martyrdom, to be burned, that I don't have my brother or sister in Christ in mind when I do these things, I gain nothing. In essence, we could stand before God on judgment day, and we could stand before him, and God's like, tell me all the great and amazing stuff you've done. And so I'm there, right? And I'm standing in front of him like, whoa, you know that I had these dreams of this And I gave them up. Like, I wanted to be a dentist and and make mad, crazy money. And God's like, well, that was never going to happen. You're not that bright. I said, but yeah, but I still gave it up. Still the dream, God. And I killed it. He said, in infancy. I was like, hey, this is semantics. Back to me now. It's like, okay, back to you. 
when I did this, I went on this trip, and I gave this money, and we sacrificed this, and we didn't buy this, and we, we taught our children this way and that way. And I knew that if I went on the tri- this trip, and I knew that if I shared the gospel with this person, I would lose my life. But in the midst of this moment, in the midst of my heart, I didn't love the people around me. I wanted to be praised. I wanted to be adored. I wanted to be respected. I wanted to be validated, right? He says you gain nothing. There's a way that you can go about your life and you can know all the right things and you can do all the right things and still at the end of your life you can be totally empty and unrewarded. Jesus speaking to his disciples in John 15, 13, talking about this idea of of laying down their lives, said, greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. Man, this is a, a high calling of Christianity. We recognize that Jesus himself laid down his life for us. Romans 5, 7 and 8 says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one will even dare to die. But God shows us the pattern and the depth and, and the extent of his love in verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners... Christ died for us. This is the love he calls us. It is self-sacrificial. It is others-focused. So that everything we know, everything we engage in spiritually, and everything we do in an act of compassion and sacrifice, if it doesn't seek the benefit of those around us, is empty and There are three quick ways that I think we can diagnose this. You can look to yourself. I tend to know when I'm lying to myself, not always. I tend to know when I'm lying to myself or seeking to fool myself, but not always. And so I can just kind of ask the question, like, in the midst of this, were my thoughts directed towards this other person? Or as I'm walking down the street, I'm like, who's looking at me? Who's looking at me? Hey, how are you? Who's looking at me? Hey there. And then I get back somewhere, I'm asked Valerie, hey, who was looking at me while I was doing that? Who saw me engaged in these things? Who saw me doing these things? How many pictures of me were posted to this or that? And so if I'm asking these questions, it's a pretty good indication that I'm engaged in this for self and not for others. But you can also ask other people. If you have a close-knit group of friends around you, and hopefully you do, if you have this group of friends around you and then they're honest, You can go to them and say, hey, look, odd question. tend to lie to myself, so let's just get that out there. But, but, look, two two weeks ago, for the city, we're out there, we're sweating. I didn't wear deodorant one day, and and you told me about that. I'm sorry. But, but, did you ever get the sense that, that I was doing this to be seen by others? Did you ever get that sense? I mean, just give somebody else the freedom to speak into your life and say, you know, you take a lot of mission trips, but you seem to do a lot of them like this. You know, just love God, here, praising God and, and wherever, doing this. And so you can't do a good deed without reporting it to everybody around you. So it seems to at least open up the question of, as to whether or not what is your true motivation for doing things. Man, there's a fine line between promoting the gospel and inviting people to serve alongside you in shameless self-promotion. We want to work hard 
to please our Lord. Amen? We don't want to mistake the, the adulation, the praise of those around us for the praise that we hope to receive someday from Jesus. So we can turn to ourselves, we can turn to others, and lastly, we turn to the Lord. And I think our prayer before God is something along these lines, am I a selfish jerk? And we just wait for a little while. And, and if he doesn't answer that, we, we come back and say, God, look, here's the deal. Here's the deal. I want to serve you faithfully. I want to serve you truly. And I can't know my heart. And I'm a really good actor. Where am I before you? And I confess that I'm at least a little bit driven to serving others so that I might be praised. Or I'm a little bit driven to serving others out of this sense of duty, out of this sense of responsibility, out of this sense of the commitment that I made in seeking to honor it. But God, would you help those things to pale in comparison in terms of my love for those around me? God, would you cause love to be the primary motivator in all that I engage in spiritually, in all that I seek to know, and in all that I endeavor to do? Would you let love reign? I believe that God honors that prayer, and I believe that God will sanctify you in the midst of that prayer, and I believe that you'll find yourself engaging in doing things in such a way that he's glorified and honored, and you love those around you in the midst. I'm desperately terrified that, that there are those in this church and other churches that engage in, in acts of merit and good deed in some desperate attempt to bring God's love towards you. That you're memorizing Bible verses, that you're praying, that you're serving others, that, that outwardly there's no ability that I can have or any of the staff or the elders, any of the deacons or, or any of the most religious people in this church could ever have to be able to put you up against somebody else and to know Christian, non-Christian, Christian, non-Christian. Because you're seeking after all of these acts so perfectly and proficiently. But you're doing all of them for the wrong reason. You've never truly come to know him. You've never really been loved by him. You've exchanged a savior over your life in the midst of sin for righteous acts and commitments and meritorious works, hoping to attain to satisfying Jesus so that at some point he might save you. And if that's where you're at today, be free. Your best deeds, your most honorable heart, your hardest work is empty, and it's good that it's empty. Because the surety of your salvation rests not in what you're able to do, but it rests in what was in the mind of God before you were ever born. And it rests in the sure work of Jesus, which was completed upon the cross, and he invites you. Not to come into love, but to come and experience love for the very first time and in experiencing that love. To have the ability to pour that love, the love of Jesus, out on those around. Would you join with me as we pray? Father, we thank you for your word, for its clarity.
God, I thank you that, man, you give us such a clear and challenging and difficult word that, that calls us to question and evaluate our motivation, where our hearts are. So God, I pray for those brothers and sisters in this room who, man, just in the hearing of this, maybe you've already been working in their hearts, but in this time, in this moment, they finally realize that they've had this whole thing flipped and done backwards. They've been engaged in doing things they thought were right and knowing things they thought were right, but never with a view towards their brother and sister and how to build them up. Love never entered the equation. God, that you would radically transform and change their hearts. That you would motivate them from a position of secure love from you towards them. God, I want to pray for those who in this hearing, in this room, and they know that they are far from you. Maybe they've never submitted themselves to you. God, that you would confirm your love for them. That you have loved them in the person of Jesus and you offer to them salvation and you bid them, ask them, invite them to come and to be loved. So God, by the power of your spirit, would you work in their hearts to convict them concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Father, you are good and do good. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.